Welcome to the Consumed Church Weekly Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this message, Antichrist, Enemy of the Anointed, part five in our series entitled Signs of the Times, a victorious and hopeful approach to the last days. For any further information about this series or the ministries of Consumed Church, check us out at theconsumedchurch.com. so wonderful. Thank you for that. Uh, I do love the Word, and uh, I'm, I'm just not satisfied to necessarily go with traditions that I've been handed, although the, lots of those are great, but I really, I really do put in the work and the time to, uh, before the Lord, uh, to understand the Word and to go with uh, advanced scholarship and not necessarily stuff that's really uh, kind of outdated. You know, as we move along in archaeology and uh, linguistics and those types of studies advance, you know, we do have to look back at the scriptures and say, maybe they didn't really know what those uh, contextual situations were. Uh, so that it always does need a, a set of fresh eyes, you know. So I don't know, have you all ever been in that place where uh, as a believer, you just read the word, you read the word, you've read it so many times that when you sit down and read it, you've, you, it's already scrolled past your screen before you uh, actually think about it, but uh, there's just so much more to discover about who God is that he's revealed in Scripture. So anyways, thank you, Matthew. That was very beautiful. Um, and I, I do have a message that is appropriate for the times, and I, you know, I didn't really ever envision myself uh, going here, but you know, the Holy Spirit's been speaking to me, and we've been on the subject about uh, signs of the times. And you know, if, if ever there was a time in my life where I could look at this uh, situation surrounding me um, short of 9-11 and the days that uh, followed that, this is a time where stuff looks pretty dark and, and pretty stressed and a lot of uncertainty. Uh, a lot of people are suffering anxiety and fear and discouragement right now. And uh, I don't want to glorify that. I want to actually um, reveal Scripture to you about just the, the, the goodness of God and the victorious power of the Holy Spirit that actually rests on you. Can anybody say, praise God? Praise God. Praise God. I mean, we're not just helpless victims uh, in this narrative uh, that is playing along uh, to waiting for some disastrous thing to roll out. Rather, instead, we have been filled with the Spirit of God. We've been joined together with Christ himself. We have already become part of the new creation. And so we have access to that at all times. However, we don't always live there because we're being pulled by things of our world. And uh, so I want to look at some stuff in 1 John today. And um, how many of you like the book of 1 John? I love 1 John. And, you know, you have to remember that this is the same guy that wrote the book of Revelation. But in the book of Revelation, he was speaking as a revelator. He was writing an apocalyptic form of literature. And, and if you've been with me the last four sermons, this is part five of Signs of the Times. Uh, I won't go back into that much, but 
just that that's a different genre, a different style of writing. And in 1 John, it's actually a letter to the churches uh, of Asia Minor and bringing comfort as a father. So he's writing pretty plainly about some of the same stuff that he talks about in Revelation that he's writing as a father. You want to keep that in mind. So I want to talk about, as we're talking about signs of the times, signs of the times is basically a statement about the end. There is something in humanity, there's part of our humanity that always wants to know chronologically how things are going to play out so we can sort of brace ourselves for them. And yet the Lord Jesus himself, and we went over this in some of the other lessons that we talked about, signs of the times, but the Lord Jesus himself, when he was pushed about uh, the calendar, he would say, you know, that's, I don't know. I really don't know. Angels don't know. I don't know. Only the Father knows. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And he diverts attention back to what you have and what you don't have instead of what you don't have. Because we're always trying to fill in the gap of this sense of lack. But the Lord says, no, I I need you to keep your eyes focused on what I'm giving you and what you're stepping into. So we always have to uh, keep that in our lens of view and our our, uh, horizon, so to speak. So just like, uh, I think I preached a sermon, it was called This Is That, and that was the... day of Pentecost, and talking about the Holy Spirit being poured out, and Peter, when he preached his sermon, when everyone said, what in the world is going on? These people look like they're drunk. And he quotes Joel 2, and he says, that's it. And that's a very eschatological uh, verse or, or passage in Joel 2 about the return of the Lord. And he says, this is that. So the number one sign, I'm going to talk about another sign, but the number one sign that the day of the Lord is at hand is that the Holy Spirit's been made available to each and every one of us, been poured out on everybody. Because that's a promise that the Lord said he would do before his return. So, another sign of the times, another prophecy that's floating around out there and been floating around out there for um, 600, it'll be 2,700 years comes from the book of Daniel, Uh, but is this prophecy about this figure that will appear in the last days before the return of the Lord. When I say the return of the Lord, uh, we've gone over this before, but you have to frame the return of the Lord within the Jewish, Jewish eschatological expectation, and that is that there is this age that is where Satan has ruled, and then there is the return, this messianic return that God comes and sets up his kingdom and the age switches over to the kingdom of God where God finally has his way and his people rule and reign in righteousness alongside of him. So uh, that, that is the eschatology that I've been teaching that we call that uh, enacted, inaugurated eschatology. The enacted word uh, is where rather than just um, talking about it in theory, that it's actually walked out. So the kingdom of God has actually come to us here now ahead of time before the actual day because the day, that day, we're still in that day, but that day when it's finalized is the day of judgment where the Lord Jesus sits down on his throne 
and hashes everything out. Okay? So sorry, I just had to put a little backstory there. When Jesus, um, so when Jesus ascended, he gave us the commission. We are co-missioned, that we would carry on the mission and the ministry of Jesus himself through the power of the Holy Spirit and through this oneness with him that we are actually now new, creat- uh, new creations, new creatures, a new humanity that is all about him living inside of us. So you're not alone ever. Hallelujah. But I want to look at, so we're talking about the Antichrist here. You know, I was like, uh, okay, Lord, I want to talk about the anointing. And we are going to talk about the anointing because the Antichrist is actually the antithesis of the anointing. Okay? So the anointing, the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh, uh, that's, that's our inheritance. That's what Jesus walked in, is the covering of the Holy Spirit. The, the anointing is synonymous with the Holy Spirit getting all over you, being sticky, being gooey, being messy, getting all over everything you get in, in, around. Amen? All right, so uh, the text for today, if you have your Bibles, 1 John chapter 2. I like the graphic Noah came up with. That's, that's the, uh, the anointed one, like giving the unanointed one the, the, the glove there. The enemy of the anointed one. All right, so 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. John says, children... It is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. Hallelujah. And you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So, I remember as a young believer and reading that and just being completely lost. I mean, I felt like a bird flying around in... in, you know, a snowstorm or something. I didn't know what end was up with that. Very strange. But it's interesting because he says, I want to start with the you have heard part. And as I opened the service, that, as I said a minute ago, that not only today is it a, a still an obsession with trying to know chronologically when these things will happen or trying to line up uh, prophecies in the Bible and and put them into our timeline and events that we're currently experiencing, that has always been the case. And again, the Lord always diverts our attention away from that and says, look, I don't even know. So why are you trying to figure that out? But there are some things that we can look at. Okay, so this idea that you have heard that the Antichrist, Antichrist is a word that he's made up. Nowhere else in scripture is anybody talking about Antichrist. But I'll get to that, why he's morphed this particular mystical um, character over to this term, Antichrist. We will get there. But I want to talk about 
that this is the person that Daniel mentions. Y'all remember Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel 11 and 12, where there's actually this prophetic word, and it gets real confusing because Daniel talks about, you know, how many kings, 10 kings, and this king does this, and this king does that. Uh, but the important part in those scriptures and those visions that Daniel had was that Daniel sees a vision of the last days, and he sees the return of the king. He sees the Messiah and the kingdom that will reign over all kingdoms. And he sees that the power of the kingdom and the authority has actually been given over to the holy ones, to the saints. And then he goes on in 11 and 12, the end of 11 and 12, to talk about this character that rises up. And he's called uh, the, the son of perdition or the uh, man of lawlessness. Paul puts those two together. It became a Jewish idiom that People were waiting and looking and expecting every time some great evil person rose up, they could point the finger and say, yeah, that's a a person of lawlessness. And this concept goes all the way back to Isaiah. Isaiah was probably the first person that started talking about children of lawlessness. And uh, Isaiah 57, 4, I believe. And you'd have to read that in the Septuagint to actually understand what's going on there. But it's basically idolaters. Uh, those that are reprobate, idolaters, and serving other gods, and actually to the effect of uh, sacrificing their children on other hills and all that, that have so rejected God, so rejected who God is, that this particular character that's brought up that we know is the Antichrist uh, from a lot of popular um, debate and all that, but uh, even in Second Thessalonians, Paul brings this character up. But this particular one... Um, Ezekiel brings him up as the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28. And Ezekiel 28, the the characteristics of this guy is that he's so proud of himself and the power that he's got as the king that he begins to uh, reject every other idea of any kind of a god and actually says, no, I'm, I'm God. So it's taking that lawlessness, that rejection of God, that serving of other gods to the extent to where I'm so arrogant and so extreme that I am the God. As a matter of fact, this particular uh, character claims that he's the God that created the other gods. And in Ezekiel 28, the Lord says, really? He says, man, I really did something amazing with you and I blessed you in every way and made you so powerful, but you've decided to be a God and that you have the heart of an Elohim, which is a, a little God like the uh, principalities and powers. You've exalted yourself like one of them. Because you've done this, I'm going to bring in other nations against you, and they're going to barbecue you. They're going to run you through the sword, throw you out in the sea, and when you're down there, are you still going to say you're a god? And so that's where this imagery comes from, is from a character or an attitude or a person that manifests this kind of an attitude against God or anything called God to actually so. Uh, defile the temple. And as many of you may or may not know, there's been, from the time that Christ showed up, there had already been four such characters in history. And Antiochus Epiphanes is probably the uh, most well-known. I think he was 300 AD. And I've preached about this guy before, but this guy shows up in the second temple period. And in the Maccabees, you can read about the Maccabean revolt. But this guy comes into the temple and he starts slaughtering pigs in there And his very name, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, means God manifest, God in the flesh, that this guy was that arrogant. And he actually did the things that uh, were predicted 
there in the book of, of Daniel, that he sat in the temple of God and said he was God. And many other, uh, there was at least four of them between then and when Christ showed up, or when, I should say, uh, when Paul wrote what he did in 2 Thessalonians. So it's real interesting. If you look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there's more mention of the, the um, man of lawlessness, the son of perdition. Like I said, that's a, it became a Hebrew idiom. And an idiom is like, you know, it's raining cats and dogs. It means that it means what it means when those words are together instead of uh, what they are apart. And uh, so that those were kind of synonymous. So he takes the, the imagery from children of lawlessness from Isaiah uh, and there came with that this idea that you are so arrogant that you will actually be destroyed. That's why they come son of perdition or son of destruction, that, that there's like no hope for someone that has gone that far to actually claim that they are God. How could they possibly receive salvation from God if they think they are him and snub their nose that hard at God? So that's, that's the character that we're talking about here. And... Uh, just a little history lesson. So everything that we read in the New Testament is just material that's repurposed from the Old Testament. And it's, it's, it's clear to know about, there's, there's things that Paul says eschatologically in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And in both cases, he's not teaching them anything. Those aren't even in there for the sake of doctrine or teaching. He's actually comforting them because they are all up in arms and he's writing a letter saying, don't you remember that I told you this stuff when I was there? I'll settle it out later. But look, false teachers had come into the, Thess- the church in Thessalonica and actually disrupted them and teaching them that the day of Christ had already come. And so Paul's settling them down. He says, no, look, you know that these different things have to happen. It's just like, have you ever had someone that's completely panicked and you begin to try to talk them down and you're not necessarily... Um, telling them all the stuff that's, you're not trying to teach them anything. You're just trying to comfort them and, and calm them down. That, that's, the, that's the tone that's going on in both of the letters to the Thessalonians. Not saying that there's not some theology in there, but that's what's going on. Okay, it's important to know that Isaiah was like uh, 755 BC when Isaiah wrote what he did about the children of lawlessness. You truck along and Daniel's like, in the, in the 500 BC area. Ezekiel, they were both very close together in that, you know, 580s to 530 in that area right there. So you're tracking through history that this is an expectation. It's a huge revelation that there's a promise during the second temple period to the Jewish people that the, that the Messiah is actually gonna show up and set up a kingdom and hand over the power to the saints. This is a huge thing for them to hang their hat on as their hope, that they're looking for the day They're looking for the new world that God will create. They're looking for the day of judgment when Messiah returns. This is important. So chronologically, I'm bringing up chronology about when these things are written, not so much chronology about when these other things are going to happen, okay? So Paul wrote what he did to the Thessalonians in like AD 52. Does everybody know what happened in AD 70? Jesus even talked about, right in Matthew 24, Jesus brings it up. Talks about the the, the man of perdition. Jesus actually, in the book of John, says, thank you, Father, that I've not lost one except for who? 
the son of perdition. Talking about Judas. So Jesus puts that title onto Judas. Well, that's curious. And then Jesus in chapter 24 goes on and he says, this generation will no means pass away until all these things have happened. Oh, now what does that mean? Does that ever throw you for a loop? Y'all are hanging with me, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Well, they had asked Jesus a question because he had talked about the destruction of the temple and grieving over Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you'd only known your hour, I would have gathered you under my wings like a hand gathers his chicks, but you didn't. Do you realize what they did? He predicted the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. In AD 70, they actually had revolts where they revolted against the Romans. It came down in AD 70, but shortly after Christ had left, and even in the climate in which Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in AD 52, the zealots were all over the place, the Jewish zealots. They even experienced some level of victory, so much so that they, where they had run Rome out of Jerusalem. So they tried to take the kingdom by force militarily. And they actually got away with it for a little while. But, you know, Rome was too big of an enemy for them to really keep out of Jerusalem. We're talking the holy city of God. The temple of God is there. And they rose up militarily. They actually changed the calendar to day one, starting when they were liberated, when they ran the Romans out. I don't know if that was 68 or what that was. And they started printing coins the day of their liberation. A whole new world. They had invented the world that was supposed to come. They had discovered it through military might. Kingdom had come. God gave us the victory, politically and militarily. AD, AD 70 comes along. Rome comes in and demolishes the place. One, over one million Jews died. Up to that point, I've never seen anything like that before. So, Matthew 24, the stuff you're reading about there, largely gets contributed to AD 70. But I still, there's a mystery about how much of that is and how much of that's not. But he was telling them the truth. There won't be one stone left upon another. Nursing mothers, run to the hills, all that stuff. It was an absolute catastrophe, catastrophe for the Jewish people. They were wiped out. No more temple, no more Jerusalem. The city completely burnt. Very little left, maybe a couple of towers. There were, there were people, it was, it was on Passover. So there were people, uh, Jews had come from all over just to come to the temple and do what they do on Passover to celebrate. They got stuck there. It was really an ugly, bloody thing. So, anyways, yay! We're talking about hope and glory and good stuff. All right. Uh, I think it's interesting that Paul, in 2 Thessalonians, he actually brings up that uh, it's the power of Satan that brings this guy and that Jesus at his coming will destroy this character with the breath of his mouth. And he says that he deceives those who are perishing. So often we get a little confused about the, the great falling away, you know, the apostasy of the church. And actually he's saying there's just a rejection because the King of kings and the Lord of lords has come and the Holy Spirit's been poured out on all flesh so that 
all of creation, when they resist the Lord, that's those, when they say no to it, it's just absolute lawlessness. Okay. Okay, point two. That was point one. <laughs> point one is you have heard. We've got to watch what we hear. What we do with what we hear anyways. Uh, part, or, uh, point two is it is the last hour. John says it's the last hour. So as I said, that stuff went down. He's post AD 70. The church is still alive. And he's writing to the churches of Asia Minor. I'm sure Thessalonica was in the group. But now everybody's probably rattled because it looks like the world just came to an end. Probably what we felt like at World War II. We're like, never seen anything like World War II. It's now AD 90, and John is writing as a father, and he says, Children, it's the last hour. Not the last day, but it's the last hour. And I want to talk about that for a minute because you can go, How is that possible? He felt like it was the last hour, and he said, We know that it's the last hour because you've heard that Antichrist is coming. And I've shifted my meaning about this man of lawlessness, and the whole book of 1 John is actually describing Antichrist and this idea of lawlessness being the enemy of the anointing, or the anointed one, I should say. He says, that's how we know it's the last hour. You guys have been asking questions about how do we know if, it's, if Christ has come back or not, and he says, you know, it can't happen. Paul said it can't happen until this character shows up and John overturns the tables and he says, he's come. Oh, he's come. Matter of fact, a whole bunch of them have come. And he talks about, he shifts from a person to a spirit that gets on people. And basically he's doing a, is this called a polemic? Forgive me if I'm using the wrong word. But a comparison of flesh that is, endowed with demonic power and flesh that is actually uh, filled with the Spirit of God, covered in the Spirit of God. And that's really what I want to talk about today, not so much about that character. So the last hour, you have to understand it like this, that until Jesus, all of human history was running towards that day, the day of the Lord. It was all racing towards like the finish line. Ooh racing towards the finish line. But when Jesus came at his first advent, it took a 90-degree turn. And the day of the Lord is actually running parallel with the last day, the last hour, so that it is always the last hour. This is not about chronology. It's about urgency. Christ is ever at the doors. Always. I mean, at any moment, the king will return. Come on. There is so much to look forward to. Then the king returns and he makes everything right. And we step over into eternity. And yet he came here and he gave gifts to us. He gave us the Holy Spirit so that we're already walking in eternity because we've become one with Christ. We've become this new humanity, the life of God. John starts out first, John, by saying, 
He's the life. He is the life. (laughs) So that the last hour, the last day is always, here we are, right on the edge, walking a tightrope. At any moment, we could slip over. You know, and I believe that the Lord does that because he's not willing that any would perish. He's holding the window wide open. Like this day has been this longest day. Y'all remember the story in the Old Testament where the enemies of God uh, were actually pursued and taken over by the Spirit of God in the Israelites because the Lord held the sun up for an extended period of time and made this long day for them to actually take out the enemy? Does anybody hear what I'm talking about? We're in that kind of a scenario right now. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And then, he, and then he handed over the Holy Spirit in his very presence and said, your turn. In him. We don't do that on our own. It's impossible. Oh. All right, point three. John's making it clear, though, that no further figure is actually needed to be fulfilled for us to be in the last hour. We're not waiting for some character to show up, some political character to begin uh, ruling the world roughshod and calling himself God so that we can then go, oh, now it's about to happen. Mark of the beast, all of that. You guys realize that there are people with bad eschatology that are losing their ever-loving mind right now because of stuff that's going on. I mean, it's happening. And I don't blame him because if I had that kind of eschatology still, once upon a time I used to ascribe to all that where I'm looking to see, you know, random uh, prophecies in the Old Testament and connect them to stuff that happens today. It's just like spaghetti. It's not that you can't maybe draw some parallels to stuff, but anybody can say anything about any random prophecy. Depends on the translation that you pull up with and nobody agrees on those things. That's why Jesus said, look, that's, that's not where you're to be focused, your attention because you have the Spirit of God resting on you to destroy the enemy. To destroy the enemy. That's what you've been called to do. Oh. Point number three. The Antichrist is this one that denies the Christ. He denies the unique relationship of who Jesus is. This unique relationship between the father and a son. This is so huge. I was reading... Uh, something this morning, a statistic. Fatherless really, fatherlessness really is our problem. You know, all, 100% of these mass shooter guys are all guys that have, they're, they're boys that don't have fathers. Every one of them. There's lots of girls without fathers that are watching, are playing video games that are eating junk and and access to guns, all that. Why are the girls not doing it? It, It's an epidemic. The boys need fathers. True godly masculinity needs to be restored in the earth. And we have this vicious cycle of men doing wrong and women being offended and hurt by it. And it's like we, the only cure for it, we, we were praying here yesterday and I just had this prophetic thing where I was seeing vision after vision. I was just declaring and crying out. And one of them was that I saw the spirit of Elijah. I cried out for the spirit of Elijah to come 
because he restores the hearts of the fathers to the children and children of the fathers, right? But how does he do that? He lays on that dead body face to face, mouth to mouth, eye to eye, and prays and asks God to transfer the anointing into that kid. Are we getting somewhere now? It's the anointing. It's the Spirit of God poured out on all flesh that is the ultimate sign that the kingdom of God has arrived. And that's what the world needs. And that's what we're here for, period. See, there's a lot of different opinions. So John was talking about false teachers that have made their way into the church. He says, you know, they, they were of us, or, or they, came, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Because if they'd been of us, they would have stayed with us. Because there was this massive disagreement. Well, how many of you know what Gnosticism is? Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnoso, which is knowledge. And Gnostics were making them, it was the first heresy of the church, I think. And so most of what he's saying is combating Gnosticism. And I, I, I can't remember the guy's name, it might have been Marcion or somebody. But there were, there were people, teachers that were coming into the church and they were teaching basically this, that the flesh is evil and corrupt and to be destroyed. And so it doesn't really matter what you do with your flesh because it's just rotten and evil and gonna be destroyed. But that like the Da Vinci Code, there's hidden knowledge to be attained. That's where salvation comes from. And so they began to mess with the dynamic uh, nature of who Jesus was and what Jesus did to fit that theology. Basically, it's so that there's no accountability, that I can have mental assent, I can have a Christian confession without Christ. Are you all following me? That's what Gnosticism was, that I could come to a place where through knowledge of unlocking doors and discovering new things in my head, that I will be saved. And so that's what he's dealing with there. And so it, they could keep on sinning and keep on just living like the devil because that doesn't really matter. Once saved, always saved. And I'm not trying to connect Gnosticism to modern day stuff necessarily. But that was the thought, was that the salvation comes that way through knowledge. And that's why he says to them specifically, you have an anointing. You don't need anybody to teach you. You have knowledge. I'm not telling you this because you don't know. I'm telling this because you already know the truth, right? The truth is a person. In the anointing, the Holy Spirit coming on you leads you into all truth, reveals the Father and reveals Jesus to us. Now, here's an important thing when they went messing with the unique person of Jesus. Jesus is called the only begotten. That doesn't mean that Jesus was born of God, although he was incarnate, he was born that way. But it's the only unique son of God. In other words, there's not another one like him. And yet he's the first fruits of a new humanity, right? So that we, when we're born of the spirit, become one with him. And so we live Jesus's life after him. We think Jesus's thoughts after him. But what, what was Jesus like? How did he operate? I think some of the Gnostic doctrine taught that the, when Jesus was baptized, that the divine nature came upon him at that point. And then when he was crucified, it left him before he actually died. 
I think there's several versions of what Gnostics believed, but all of it was taking away from this dynamic relationship. We have to understand that Jesus came as he, he was most certainly the son of God. He was deity, equal to God. But he took that part of himself and he set it aside, found himself as, an, as a man, and he actually submitted himself to the will of the Father. And when he was baptized by John, by someone else, the Holy Spirit came on him. And then he began to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why did he do that? He was undoing the works of the enemy. And he was doing it with human flesh. So that when we die with him and rise again with him in that way, when we're baptized and when we get inundated with the Holy Spirit, that we now have his anointing resting on us so that we can fulfill his mission and his ministry. I say fulfill. It will be fulfilled when he returns, but continue on in his mission and his ministry. The Antichrist spirit denies the Christ. It denies the, the, the word Christ. This is why he's been given the name above every other name. Jesus means Joshua, a deliverer. And Christ means anointed one, one covered in the Holy Spirit. He's also called the son of David, though he's connected to the promised Messiah. Acts 10, 37 and 38, in case you need a couple scriptures for this. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. How about Philippians 2, 5 and 8, 5 through 8? This is where it comes home to roost for us. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then it goes on to talk about how we're to treat one another and see others better and give our lives. There's this self-giving love of Jesus that is enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to give ourselves away, that Jesus lived in submission to the Father. He only did what he saw the Father doing. He only said what he heard the Father saying. That's the, that's the reason why he says, John says in our text, he is Antichrist who denies that Jesus is the, the anointed one and that he denies the Father and the Son, that unique relationship. Are y'all tracking with me? If you keep reading in, in, in John, actually, if you back up before our text and he says, Little children don't love the world or the things of the world. Whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. As all that is in the world, the desire of the eye, the desire of the flesh, and the pride of life, this is from the world. 
That's the verses that precede him saying, my little children, it's the last hour. And we know it because the Antichrist showed up. Right, so what he's talking about is a lifestyle of living our life through the power of the Holy Spirit. I was talking to Lauren in the pool yesterday about this and um, he was like, oh my goodness, should we sell everything? And I said, no, 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 honey. That doesn't mean you can't have nice stuff. The, the desire, or King James would say the lust of the eye, is this thing where I just have to see it. I got to see it. I got to see it. I got to see it to believe it. And the eye can never get enough to be filled. But yet God wants us to walk with eyes. Lord, I'm asking you right now, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? He's always saying that. He who has eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would see in the spirit, that we would see what God sees. That's why we meet here on Saturday. And all we do is just exalt the Lord until, bam, we're in the heavenly realm. And then we just start going off, declaring what we see. We see what he sees. Now you've been given his eyes. Hallelujah. But in the world, there's a, a lust of the eye that can never get enough. There, there's a desire of the flesh, which is just, y'all know what that is, just everything that, you, that your flesh wants. When you're walking according to the Spirit, that the flesh is very much involved, but it's submitted. There's a submitted relationship to what the Lord wants to do. It's that easy. It's walking in the Spirit. And then the pride of life is the epitome of the Antichrist, where he would be so proud of himself and say, this is the pride of life. I've done this. You know, it looks kind of like a bunch of people sitting around talking about how much all their stuff costs. You know, being proud of everything that I've done, look at me. And kind of one up in the next guy. Y'all, I've done that. I mean, I've, I've had that in my life before. That, he said, don't love the world. That's loving the world. And that doesn't mean that when you are serving the Lord, this is why my life message is seek first the kingdom of God. When you actually surrender and submit to the voice of the Holy Spirit, no matter how scary it sounds that he would ask you to do things, and sometimes it's not scary. It's just like, is that it, Lord? That's boring. But the Lord has got your life mapped out. And a lot of it is character development. And some of it is taking some serious risks. Do you realize that's part of the huge part that's wrong with the fatherless problem is that, you know, I think it said 18 and a half million kids today in the United States are in fatherless households. And single moms, guess when that started? 50 years ago. So you see that Aborting is way bigger than going down to the clinic and having an operation. And it's just as much the man's problem as it is the woman's problem. And we all have the same problem. It's a lawlessness problem. It's a I don't want to die problem. I don't want to be embrace Christ problem. Am I making sense? And that's a complicated thing, but 18 and a half million kids are in uh, fatherless homes in the United States. That's double before like 1968. So yeah, I'm not sitting here trying to shame anybody that's had an abortion. I'm saying that guys, we've got to look and see that we have an antichrist problem yeah. and it's man and woman problem, not just a woman problem. A woman usually typically gets 
stuck with it while the guy slides out the back door. But sometimes the women don't want the man. It's a controlling spirit. Don't want the man to have anything to do with the kid because they've got a problem. I'm going to raise this kid on my own. These kids, the, the bigger problem is that the father has been aborted. The, the kids need their dad, period. Because dads are the ones that come and actually challenge them to take risks. <laughs> Moms are always like, you did what with my kids while I was out of town? <laughs> I, used to take, I used to take Noah and I'd throw him up so high, he was like five years old, he'd hit the ceiling right there. <laughs> but there's something developmental that needs to happen in young men where they are actually given firm boundaries and yet at the same time given the ability uh, to take crazy risks. And when they know that dad has instructed them and instructed them and put those boundaries, the more that that is a loving expression, the, the, the depth of character grows in the kid. And true masculinity can then take place. Not macho stuff. I'm talking about true masculinity. I don't even think we know about that. I'll get to that in another sermon. That wasn't what this was about. But... Uh, it really does matter how we carry on our lives. If we have a form of Christianity where we're just like, it's all under the blood, which it is, but we never begin to grow up in God, it, we are so wide open to the spirit of Antichrist and getting drug under the bus with this children of lawlessness thing. And thanks be to God that he's kept that window of this last hour wide open. 1 John chapter 3, I'm almost done, I think. 1 John chapter 3. He takes it a step further past this idea of all of these different Antichrist characters. In verse 4, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Whoa, he just connected the children of lawlessness to when we actually have the living Christ, the agent of God on the inside of us, and we keep on sinning on purpose, that we're colluding with the spirit of Antichrist. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and there is, in him there is no sin. Another place he says, look, if we sin, if we say we don't have it, then we're liars, right? It's dealing with the sin and crushing it and killing it, right? No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, keep in mind, he is throwing this dart at Gnostics and their thinking. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Here's evidence. We're talking about signs of the times. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And you know if you've read the book of 1 John, he goes on and on and on, and he talks about loving our brother. You 
I know this is heavy. It's a lot to absorb and a lot to take in. Uh, But it is important that we realize that God has come in the flesh on purpose, walked as a man, anointed by the Holy Spirit in submission to a father. This is a Trinitarian uh, deal. The, the, The work on the cross was a Trinitarian project. Jesus wasn't there alone with the Father off in some other place. Now the Father was very involved and so was the Holy Spirit. Ah, so that we could be a part of his own body. The anointing finds expression in self-giving love. It embraces the cross. If you jump down to... Verse 16, it says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That's what love is. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how's it even possible that the love of God abides in him? Little kids, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know. That's your sign. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Okay, why don't we stand up? we think we know what you did but you did so much more than we realize it's been our absolute honor and pleasure Lord to seek you out to discover daily Lord who you are and what you've done just how saved we really are Lord because you put your love you gave yourself away for us you invite us into a lifestyle not of carrying on Lord like the world does because this age is winding down any day now Lord you're going to change it all you're going to change it all and in our lives God we can actually be changed now and we're the agents of change to everyone that's around us God we ask for a greater measure of anointing Y'all put your hands out. A greater measure, Lord, of the anointing. Today, Holy Spirit, we invite you. We embrace you to show us how to love like Jesus, to give our lives away. Lord, I know that it's not that we can't have nice stuff. You give us so much. And we give you all the glory because you've not withheld any good thing from us, God. But Lord, everything that we have and everything we experience in life, we want to be able to turn around and go, look what God did. I didn't do that. I'm not good enough for that. But you're always good. You're a good father. So Lord, we embrace the assignment today to destroy the works of the devil in our own lives. In our own lives.
You know, the Lord said that it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man. It's not about religious practices, what comes out that defiles a man. And there's something about us that we desire to purify and have a spotless life. So many people spend all of their energy trying to make themselves completely comfortable. But honestly, that, that, that's called the, the, the will to purity. We all have it, unless someone's severely broken. But that's why we push others away. All violence comes out of that when the will to purity is external rather than internal. Lord, right now we just reject the spirit of antichrist. The spirit of anti-anointing, we just reject it because we're afraid of what you might do. Lord, rather boldly, with courage, God, we say, would you anoint us to preach good news to the poor, God, to release captives, set prisoners free, to declare the favorable year of the Lord. Lord, it's in you and in your spirit. We just receive the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God come over these folks right now in Jesus' name. Even those that are watching on our online audience, Lord, I pray that the anointing would hit them like a wave, those that will receive it. Bless you guys. If there's anything going on that you want someone to stand with you, I totally, completely, 100% know that God has given us authority, the authority that is Jesus' as he shared with us to take down every wicked and evil thing. I felt like this is a week of spiritual warfare. There's just been stuff going on. But you have been given the victory. So if you want someone to stand with you, come on up and we'll pray. So prayer team, anyone that's available to pray, come on up. If not, you guys have a great week. I love you so much. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening to the Consumed Church weekly podcast. This entire service and others can be viewed on our Facebook and YouTube channels. If you would like to partner with us in raising the next generation of kingdom bringers, you can do so at theconsumedchurch.com slash give.